Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. At the time that I'm recording this, it's now just over a couple of months away from the first ever Ironman World Championship to be held in St. George, Utah on May the 7th. I've already spent more than enough time discussing the merits of this race being held away from the Big Island in Hawaii, so I'm not going to go into that again. But I do want to talk about something that I have seen and heard around this race of late, and it is unfortunately a recurring theme, and that is the unending litany of disparaging commentary being directed towards Ironman as the race approaches. About six weeks ago, I received an email from Ironman inviting me to participate in the St. George race because of my AWA gold status that I earned last year. Now, I've been AWA gold for several years, and while this program is, truthfully, in many respects, a kind of loyalty program for Ironman athletes, it also does recognize those who do well in their age group and does provide some minor benefits at races that, given the cost to participate in the program, nothing, are really kind of nice. At any rate, I knew that the Utah race was far from capacity, given the size of the venue and the nature of what had gone on in allowing athletes the option to defer their qualification up to several years. So it really didn't come as a huge surprise that Ironman would open up slots in this kind of way, Uh, although maybe I was a little bit surprised that they were offering them to AWA athletes, but honestly, it wasn't that surprising. Now, I'm not really training for a race like this, so it wasn't exactly an option that I could take advantage of, but I still thought it was a nice opportunity. Sure, the cynical side of me could see that this was a way for Ironman to make more money and that this wasn't the same as earning my slot, but I wasn't terribly fussed. Ironman is a company, after all, and doesn't put on races just for warm and fuzzy feelings. They have a bottom line, so it made sense to me for them to do this, and hey, slots are hard to come by. If I hadn't already qualified for Kona later this year, I would have seriously considered taking advantage of this and had no qualms about it. What bothered me, though, was the disappointing and yet completely predictable chorus of complaints and cynicism from the usual corners of the internet, in which far too many people felt the need to spew hatred and vitriol on Iron Man and anyone who would deign to take a spot in this way. Seriously, what's wrong with people? Since the time that I came to this sport more than 20 years ago, triathlon has always been such a welcoming place, populated principally by positive and supportive people. I know that there's always been the Debbie and Danny Downers among us, but since the pandemic began, they seem to have multiplied at a really alarming rate, and I gotta say, it's sad to see. These people are constantly looking for things to be angry or upset about, and to vent their frustrations to anyone who will listen, and invariably invariably the target of their anger seems more and more to be Iron Man itself. I find myself wondering, what exactly is the point? All Iron Man has done, after all, is develop a successful, worldwide series of well-organized and well-run races that the vast majority of triathletes really enjoy participating in. Has the organization made missteps? Of course they have. Do they do everything right? No, they don't. But does anyone, or does any company? And to hear the naysayers tell it, the magnitude of the things that Iron Man has done to these people personally is on the ordering of some kind of life-altering harm. I don't understand the point of being angry all the time, and I certainly don't understand the point of taking every opportunity to publicly tear down the organization that provides the vast majority of the great events that we all want to participate in. Should we ask that Ironman do a better job of the things that they haven't done that well? Of course we should. But why not do so in a way that is constructive and more likely to accomplish something other than shining a spotlight on themselves? As for the World Championship in St. George, they were offering slots to AWA Silver last I heard, and I think that's a tremendous opportunity for some people who might never get a chance to participate in this kind of event. Sure, the vast majority aren't going to be able to do it because they are insufficiently trained, don't have the resources or time to travel or any other number of reasons. But for the few who can make it work, I'm excited for them. And anyone who makes it a point to raise a stink about this is only serving to take away from the big moment that this really should be for those folks who are going to go. 
So as we stand here, hopefully, optimistically, on the other side of a really awful couple of years marked by death and disease and all kinds of horrible things, maybe now is as good a time as ever to look inward and see if we can dispense with the anger and negativity and get back to making our sport the positive and supportive and joyous thing that it's always been, and the way it could be again. Iron Man is a big part of that, so let's stop with all the public hating. On the show today, I'm going to look at the research on how exercise and sleep are intertwined. There's a growing body of evidence on how important good quality sleep is on being able to perform well during intense physical activities. And it turns out the reverse is true as well. Exercise contributes to improved sleep. Not only that, but sleep and exercise together also lead to improved memory and cognitive function. And all of this interesting science is going to be coming up in the medical segment that starts very shortly. Later, I'm joined by former Ironman world champion Heather Fuhrer. I was really excited to run into Heather at the 70.3 World Championships in St. George last fall, and when I got over falling all over myself as a superfan, I asked if she would come on the podcast at some point to talk about her time in the sport as a professional and to give us an update on what she's been doing since she retired. Well, I'm really excited to bring that conversation to you now, and that's coming up shortly. Before that, I want to remind you all of the many bonus interviews that you can hear if you become a Patreon supporter of this podcast. For about the price of a cup of coffee per month, Patreon supporters of this podcast like Rebecca, Scott, Layla, and many others can hear my interviews with Sky Munch, Laura Siddle, Dave Scott, Mark Allen, and so many others on a private feed delivered directly to your listening device of choice. So visit my Patreon site today and become a supporter so that you too can get access. The URL for more information and where you can sign up is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And as always, thank you so much in advance just for considering. You've heard me speak about it before on this podcast, and my athletes who I coach will hear me speak about it a lot as well. I am guessing that if you have a coach, then you probably hear about this subject pretty much to the same degree too, and that subject is the importance of recovery, and when we speak about recovery, it's impossible to ignore sleep. There have been many over time who have argued that sleep is an unnecessary waste of time. Einstein and Franklin are prime examples of famous thinkers who are purported to have had disdain for sleep. But more and more, sleep is being recognized as a very important element of both physical and mental health, and this is especially true for athletes. There is, after all, a growing body of evidence that supports the value of sleep as a means of enhancing an athlete's ability to train and perform in competition. This is because sleep is more than just a time when we allow our body to rest and recover from the activity of the preceding day. It's also the period when all manner of physiologic processes occur that allow for the restoration of normal functions across many systems in our bodies. Interestingly, there is additional literature that shows that while sleep improves exercise performance, the reverse is also true. Exercise improves sleep. Studies have shown that people who exercise regularly have better sleep quality and quantity than those who don't. In a 2021 paper, researchers conducted an experiment in which two groups were randomized into exercise or not before sleeping, and then had their brain activity monitored during sleep with electroencephalographs, EEG. The groups then had a two-week washout period before being switched to the other group and performing the experiment again so that each group was compared not only to the other group, but also each person could then be compared to themselves being in both groups. The results of the study were pretty interesting. The EEG analyses of sleep showed that sleep architecture was significantly improved in those who performed exercise in the hours before bedtime. That is to say, the readings of the EEG were more consistent with deeper and more restorative sleep. However, the participants reported subjectively feeling as though their sleep was not quite as good after exercise than it was when they hadn't exercised. So objectively, the evidence showed sleep was better, but subjectively, the participants reported not quite as good sleep. This is an example of when the evidence was directly in opposition of what the subjects actually felt. Another study from 2019 performed in Japan had very similar methods and found, not surprisingly, very similar results. In those who exercised, there was a pretty striking improvement in brainwaves associated with higher quality sleep. 
Specifically, the authors highlighted so-called slow-wave sleep, in which brain activity is particularly conducive to dreams and restoration of many other important neurologic functions. The authors in this study hypothesized that because those who exercised had a higher core temperature at the onset of sleep, and because this higher core temperature is associated with slow-wave sleep, exercise may promote improvements in sleep architecture through this mechanism, that is to say, increasing body temperature, resulting in better and more sustained slow-wave sleep. There are several other biochemical and physiological theories that could explain how exercise helps benefit sleep in this way. As well as raising body temperature, exercise is associated with changes in heart rate and heart rate variability related to increased parasympathetic tone that also enhances slow brain wave activity. Finally, exercise is associated with increased blood levels of several inflammatory markers, all of which contribute to that same slow brain wave activity. Now, one of the systems that benefits the most from sleep is obviously the central nervous system, where the brain is located, Through exactly, though exactly what goes on within the brain during sleep still remains kind of a mystery. The vital importance of sleep to proper brain function, however, is very, very clear. We know through studies of sleep deprivation that if people don't get sleep, we rapidly see disturbances in cognitive function, the onset of psychiatric problems, and if really prolonged, sleep deprivation can actually lead to death. Sleep researchers have also learned of the importance that sleep has for the consolidation of short-term memories into long-term memories. Without adequate sleep, there is impaired memory and significant deterioration in the performance of tasks that require memory. More recently, research has demonstrated that exercise also can improve memory, though the magnitude of the benefit remains a little bit unclear. There is a cyclical nature to the benefits of sleep and exercise, such that sleep benefits exercise, exercise benefits sleep, and both benefit memory. Now, how exactly sleep relates to memory is, as I said, still a subject of much research and kind of a mystery. We've now seen that acute exercise of moderate intensity performed during the daytime or even just before bed improves objective measures of sleep quality, leads to more minutes of deep sleep, and modifies the architecture of sleep in a way that actually may promote improved memory formation. Exercise also results in increased levels of a specific marker that originates in brain tissue and is associated with increased neuroplasticity. Brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, is seen in higher concentrations when the brain is forming new connections and actively storing new information, including memories. And BDNF increases after periods of exercise, suggesting that this is another potential way that exercise and memory enhancement are linked. In a lab animal study from 2013, researchers were able to show that exercise was protective against the kind of memory impairment that is seen with sleep deprivation, and they were able to tie that directly to levels of BDNF that was seen in higher concentration in the animals who exercised. Interestingly, the results of this study were duplicated in humans with pretty much identical results, though here without the ability to determine the molecular basis of the findings. The authors of this study found that, quote, seven weeks of combined moderate and high-intensity exercise interval training has a significant but relatively small beneficial effect on vigilance and sustained attention deficits during total sleep deprivation, end quote. Better yet, and I know all of you who love to nap are going to be super happy to hear about this, another study published in 2020 looked at how exercise and napping contributed to memory. In this study, 115 adults were randomized to one of four groups, exercise with no nap, exercise and nap, no exercise and nap, or no exercise and no nap. And then all were put through a battery of memory tests. And the group that did far and away better than anyone else was the exercise and nap group, demonstrating that there was a synergism between sleep and exercise and that more sleep was, well, more better. The results of all of this research and some other studies that I have not included here is really very compelling. Essentially, it seems that there is a pretty convincing argument to be made that better sleep improves exercise performance and that in turn, exercise performance improves sleep architecture and that together, this leads to improved memory. But a few questions still remain to be answered in this field and researchers are hopeful that what is known to date bodes well for future findings.
For example, it's well established that memory and the ability to incorporate new memories declines with age. Exercise has been shown to help mitigate the effects of sleep deprivation on memory. So is it then possible that as we age, exercise might also have an impact on delaying the effects of age on memory as well? I spoke with one sleep researcher, Dr. Mark Roig, who told me that, quote, exercise will not prevent Alzheimer's disease, but exercise can prevent or slow the memory decline associated with mild cognitive impairment or mild Alzheimer's seen with advancing age, end quote. Another important question relates to how much of a role does regular exercise have on improving memory? Memory studies to date have mostly focused on the effects of single bouts of exercise, Will those who exercise regularly then be found to have improved overall memory over time versus those who don't exercise regularly? Dr. Roig, the same researcher I spoke to that I just uh, quoted, believes that it is possible. His feeling is that elderly people who exercise regularly will have preserved sleep architecture similar to those who are younger and that this can help preserve memory longer, but we don't yet have studies on this. Volume and intensity of exercise are also likely to be important in this equation, but it remains to be determined just how much of a role these variables will have, though many researchers believe that intensity especially is going to be the real key, with higher intensity being better for memory. The good news is that there are ongoing experiments to find the answers to these questions, and to further delineate how exercise and memory are interdependent. For now, keep training, because it will make you sleep better, and very likely help you remember things better as well. Now, where did I put my notes? Do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering in this podcast? Well, send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, and I'll be sure to take it under consideration, and you might hear the answer right here. Spring is right around the corner, and while it may not be warm enough to get on on your bike in most of the places that are going to be hearing this podcast, one place that is plenty warm is St. George, Utah. And that is the location for the first ever Life Sport Utah Triathlon Training Camp. That's going to be taking place April the 7th to the 10th, just a few short weeks away. There's still time to sign up for this fantastic camp that's going to be hosted by myself, Coach Juliet Hockman, and Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson. Four uh, solid days of swimming, biking, running, lots of clinics, lots of group time, and lots of bonding with other fellow triathletes like yourself. There'll be a long course focus, but lots of high-intensity stuff to get you ready for short course as well. If you're looking for a really great way to springboard your fitness into the early spring for any early spring races you might have, or just to get a good base of fitness heading into your summer races, I can't think of a better way to do so. I'd love to see you there as would Coach Juliet and Lance and the other triathletes that are already signed up. There's still time and still some spots remaining, so go over to lifesportcoaching.com, take a look at the Camps tab, and get some more information and learn how you can sign up. Again, that's April 7th to the 10th in St. George, Utah. We'd love to see you. I am really, really excited about my guest on the podcast today. I know I say that a lot, and it's true. I'm very fortunate that I get to speak to some amazing people on this program, and in general, I'm always pretty excited to speak to them. But today, it's maybe a little bit more special. When I was just getting into triathlon back in the early 2000s, it was the heyday for Canadian professionals at the Ironman distance. Peter Reed was dominant on the men's side, but it was really Canadian women who set the standard with the amazing Laurie Bowden, a previous guest on this program, Lisa Bentley, and today's guest, winning or placing on the podium of most every race in North America and at Kona for the better part of a decade. Back in September of last year, I had just finished a half Ironman World Championships at St. George, and as I made my way through the finisher area, collecting the various finisher goodies on offer, I came across a familiar face. I am unembarrassed and unashamed to say that I went completely fanboy and gushed my enthusiasm to meet Heather Fuhr, the third of those great Canadian professional triathletes and the Ironman world champion from 1997. Either I didn't make as much of a fool of myself as I feared I did, or she felt pity for me, whatever it was, she agreed to come on here today and talk to me about her career, her induction into the Ironman Hall of Fame, and the state of the sport in 2022, and I seriously could not be happier about it. Welcome to the TriDoc Podcast, Heather. Thank you so much. Um, really, really awesome to be here. And, um, and thanks. Yeah, thanks for reaching out, 
after your race. And then um, we finally, finally got to do it. So I'm excited. Thank you. Oh, that's, it's really a privilege. Um, you know, I want to start with just a, a look back over your career. Um, it was a very distinguished 14-year professional career. And during that time, you demonstrated really some remarkable consistency. You were in the top 10 at the Hawaii Ironman nine straight times, um, including your win in 97, second in 2004, and three other top fives. You won Lake Placid five out of six times. You finished second another time. You won Ironman California, Ironman Germany. I could go on and on. I was even even impressed to see that at your last race in 2007 in Ironman Canada, you placed third. And so what I really want to ask is, what do you attribute your great run of success over such a long period of time to? You know, I think, um, thank you for that anyway, but, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that is a good point. I think for me, I loved what I did, but also I, I wanted to be able to do it for a long time. And so I, I felt like I had, I chose, you know, I trained smart and I also chose like my race schedule such that I could actually race for a number of years and, and be consistent. So it was very, it was planned out. Um, but it was also, you know, also doing something you love helps. So I think, yeah, I just, I never, I, I never thought I'd be doing it for more than a year or so. So to continue, continue to do it was, um, yeah, was great. And it's really interesting to hear you say, <laughs> I saw your interview with Bob Babbitt uh, when you and Lori were inducted in 2015. And, and to hear both of you say how you didn't expect to have the kind of success that you did. Uh, that's so typically Canadian, right? To be so <laughs> humble. But um, you had to have thought, hey, I'm good at this and I'm going to be doing it for a while. I mean, it, it couldn't have been like, you know, it, well, it, like at some point you had to realize that you were really good. Well, but I mean, it takes a while though. I mean, I, when I first started racing, I, I actually had just taken a leave, taken a leave of absence from my accounting job. And I said, you know what, I just want to, I want to go try this for like one year and, you know, and I'll be back, you know, hold my place for me. And, and, you know, that was however many 30 years ago or whatever it was now. But, um, so I honestly didn't know at that time where it was going to take me. You know, I was very, just getting into the sport and, um, you know, had, was looking up to, to some of the greats at the time, the Paulo Nibby Frasers and the Aaron Bakers and just watching them and, 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 and just little by little. And then eventually something happens and you think, okay, you know, maybe I can, I can do this. And, and, and probably, you know, winning an Ironman for the first time probably helped that. And then you, you continue to kind of inch along and you think, okay, um, I, you know, maybe this is something I can do and I can make a living at it. And then, and then as you go along, you feel more fortunate about it. You're like, wow, I'm actually able to make a living at this. And this is something pretty special. So, and obviously hindsight and and being able to look back now years, years later, it's, um, it it was an incredible time, but it, it takes, it took a while before you could really, really believe you were going to be able to make it. And, and oftentimes people believe that before you do. And, and, and it takes, take something for you to be able to, to think that yourself. I have this image in my head that there's this accounting office somewhere with this like dusty cubicle and <laughs> people walk by and they're like, whose office is that? Oh, that's Heather. She might be coming back. <laughs> yeah. Just wait. She's still coming. Yeah. <laughs> Um, during the time that you were, uh, doing all these great things, your husband, Rock Fry, uh, also a professional triathlete. And I, I'm just curious, uh, I know how difficult it is balancing a household here and I'm the only one training. Uh, what was that like, uh, being two pros and, and, you know, making that work? It, I mean, it was great. I think, you know, you have that, you have that person that you can train with. Obviously he was, you know, a lot stronger than I was, but we could train together and you definitely related Um, and at that time when we were both racing, we didn't have any other commitments. We didn't care. (laughs) You know what I mean? You could just do your training and lay on the sofa and and that's all that mattered. You just did that. So, so yeah, it worked out great. I think having somebody that can understand what you're doing and can relate to it is so important. And you see that, you see that nowadays with a lot of the, the power couples that are out there that it's, it's important because you need somebody that understands you're going to have those days when, you know, when you're not going to want to hang out with one another, but for the most part, it's, it's a great, a great connection. And, and, and it helps, I think for everybody when you, when you, yeah, I, I, I totally get that. I'm, I, I'm a physician. My wife is a physician and I know that, um, in, 
amongst physicians, there's sort of two sort of thoughts about that. You, you know, there's a lot of people who say, oh God, I do not want my spouse to be a physician because I do not, you know, I work so hard at it. I don't want to come home and have the same thing. And then there was my wife and I both felt like, no, actually we really like being married to another physician because they under, we understand each other. We could talk, we can bring things that bother us from work home and, and have that person who totally gets it. So I, I totally yeah. understand what you're saying there. Um, I was amazed in, in reading uh, just uh, some of the information you sent me that you came to triathlon and really didn't swim beforehand <laughs> that that's something that's something that as an age group or someone who who didn't swim as a child and and really had to learn as an adult to to swim that that, that i that's something we're uh, many age groupers are very familiar with what was that like to become a professional and, and really have to learn how to swim and then become as good a swimmer as you were well i mean i i think that's questionable <laughs> Uh, 56. Some- well, I mean, compared to today, obviously, I mean, you know, Lucy Charles Barkley is going to swim a lot faster, right. but 56 minute swims and 55 minute swims in an Ironman for a female pro is, is very respectable. I mean, it was okay. I mean, definitely that was the part that I, I had to work the hardest on. I mean, I came from a running background and, and I, you know, did that for a long time. And then I, I decided I wanted to try something different. And obviously rock at that time had been was doing triathlons and I had gone and watched and thought it was crazy. And why would anybody want to do that? And, and mostly because I couldn't swim. And then I thought, you know, I'm going to get, I want to try. And, and I just assumed I'd be able to swim because you can run. And, and when you realize when you run, you can breathe whenever you want and you, you get, you can get a lot of air, but when you try and swim, it's like, Oh my gosh, I can't breathe. So my brother and I, we, we took this like stroke improvement which stroke improvement when you don't really have a stroke is, I don't know what they're improving, but, um, and we did, and we, we got, so we could swim, you know, the, the, the race we did, I think was one K swim and we got, so we could do that. And, and it was awesome. You know, it was something new and it was really, um, challenging. And, and so then did, did my first triathlon having just, you know, gotten to be able to swim that distance. And then, and then it was kind of, continued from there but yeah it was it's it's hard to to do something that you're not accustomed to and that you're not that you've never done I mean don't get me wrong I paddled around and swam around as a kid you know it wasn't like I would drown but I certainly didn't didn't swim laps and was not a a a swim team kid or anything like that so it's still really you know it's amazing because I, I I have struggled uh, you know I learned to swim in order to do triathlon and it's taken me a very long time to I mean I'm still not that good I I, <laughs> I, I mean I've I've gotten myself where I, I'm not I'm not losing the race anymore on the swim uh, I can nice. now compete but I mean to to be a professional you have to do more than that. And, and it's amazing to me having spoken to, I I've now over the course of interviews spoken to some top age groupers and some professionals who really did have to learn as adults. And there's clearly something, um, I mean, swimming is so technique focused and I I don't have it and I don't know what it is. I don't know. Maybe I have shoulder restriction. I don't know what it is, but, but, but someone like you who clearly was able to learn and, and be able to be fast enough to compete is, uh, very impressive. And, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's something that we all aspire to and yet only a few people are able to succeed doing it. And it doesn't matter how hard you work. Like I work very hard in the pool. I'm just not able to get to that, you know, to that level. And it's always fascinates me that some people can do it. Yeah. And it seems like, you know, swimming definitely is that way. It's, it's, it, it's so technical and it's like, you know, riding, you know, if you put more time in on the bike, you're going to get faster. There's, you know, it's just, it's just a matter of putting the time in, but, but swimming, yeah, it's so technical that you just, uh, yeah, you have to, there has to be something that you find that you're able to do, but yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to go back to your uh, professional time, and uh, a question I wanted to ask you is: you know, at the time that you and Lori and I, I don't know, were you friendly with Lisa? I know that you and yeah. Lori are very close. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So at the time that you, Lori, and Lisa were doing, you know, such an amazing job of representing Canada, did you have a sense that you were having an impact on girls and young women who were being exposed to the sport through what you were accomplishing? And I say that because, you know, at the time. I mean, I, I was a contemporary of yours in terms of age, but 
I was exposed to the sport because of you guys and you had an outsized impact on me. And I just wonder, did you have a sense that you were having that kind of impact on young girls and women as well, uh, specifically in Canada? You know, I, 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 now that I look back at it, yes, I, I can see that. I think when you're in the middle of it, um, not as much, you know what I mean? Obviously, you, you would meet young girls and, and, and along the way and at races. And, and obviously you could see that hopefully they were getting excited, just watching, watching some women, women do what they do. And especially with, like you said, the success that the Canadian women were having just in general, I think that helped. But when you're in it, you, you, you do it because you love it. And, 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 and you want to share that with anybody who, who will listen, you know, to, to be honest. And so, it's a bonus, you know, it's a bonus that you can, you can make an impact on people. And I don't think you realize it until you've stepped away a little bit that, that you have. And, and now I feel very fortunate that I, I was able to, and, 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 um, yeah, when you look back at it, it, it's an awesome thing. Yeah. Um, I have, uh, (laughs) In preparing for this, I pulled out my Ironman uh, First 25 Years uh, book, uh, <laughs> which goes over the races. And there's a wonderful picture in there of you and Laurie and um, uh, Ingram, Wendy Ingram. Uh, and it refers to you three as the Spice Girls. So I, was, I, I had to ask you so you could uh, elaborate on that because there was no elaboration in the text. And I'll, I'll put that picture up uh, on the video for anybody who tunes in on uh, the podcast and wants to check it out. Yeah, that, that was that was fun. So that was for a competitor magazine cover. And that was obviously during the time when the Spice Girls were kind of, the you know, in the in thing. And so um, they had this idea that they would just kind of dress us up as, you know, some sort of Spice Girl team. And, and so it was fun. We We got together and, you know, they... They made Lori's hair bigger than life, which she has a beautiful hair. And we just all, we had a lot of fun. So yeah, it was good times. <laughs> it's a great picture. Um, I want to go back to this uh, thing that you said earlier about leaving your job and taking a chance and, and trying to go out and be a pro. And, and you know, when you were racing, Ironman events were still pretty rare. Uh, even when I got into the sport and I started looking for my first event, I remember <laughs> looking at the, the, there was this chart where you could compare the, the grand total of four Ironman <laughs> events that there were in North America at that time and decide yeah. which one do I want to do, which one's going to be the hardest. So as a professional athlete, how did you subsist when you raced as you know rarely as you did at that time? And how did you manage your training? Was it just around the individual one or two events you would do that year, or was it still an all round, all year round thing? So we would, um, first of all, on the training, you know, we were up in Canada, and we would we slowly had started to to spend winters down in in San Diego, and then go back up to Canada in the summer, and and so while we were up in Canada, and and it was colder. We obviously didn't do as much. And, and, and I think that was a good thing. We would take usually a couple, a month or so off at the end of the season and always have a, a long break. And I think that really helped, but you, you know, just getting going, you, you, you're right. There really weren't very many races to do. And, and, and that's the reason you'll see for me that I, I went to a number of races quite a few times because there really weren't any others to go to. So you, you would pick your couple of races a year and you would train for those and, and, and hopefully be able to slot in some other races along the way, some shorter races and, and just plan the training that way. But it was always geared towards sort of a, you know, an Ironman event throughout the year, maybe two at the most. And then, and then keying, and then keying up for Hawaii at the end of the year for Kona. And, and that was sort of how it was. And, and then really shutting down after, after Kona, cause there was nothing else. There was nothing, there were no races to do after that. So I think you, it made you, it made you choose your races wisely because you couldn't just, Oh, I did one. Oh, going to change it. Didn't finish. So I'm going to just go to the one next week. It was like, well, if you didn't do one, you didn't have the opportunity to, to do another one for quite some time. So you really wanted to train smart and, and, and pick your races wisely. And was there adequate, like, prize purses to, you know, to, to keep you going as a professional? Or did you sort of have to do other things? Like, were most of the pros working other jobs at that point? You know, I think we, we were in a place where you made enough 
you know, that you could live. You were definitely not living a lavish lifestyle, but you made enough, you know, and as, as we got along, you know, rock moved into more of the coaching side of things. And so that, you know, that kind of helped a little bit, but, um, the sponsors were great. You know, I, I had some sponsors that were great throughout that time. So you weren't making a great living, but you were at least, um, making a living and able to do and not have to worry about getting another job throughout that time. So I was lucky that way. Um, you know, some, sometimes through the off, off season, I would definitely do some work just to, to make a little extra money. But once I really started focusing, you know, and, and thinking it was my career, then it really was just that. And I really didn't do any other, any other jobs outside of that. But you, again, you learn to live, you learn to live pretty, pretty, you use your money wisely and you, you, there's not a lavish lifestyle for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned rocks coaching and that actually leads me to my next question. I work with, uh, Lance Watson and, uh, Lance mentioned, he knew I was going to be speaking with you and he said, I should ask you about multisport.com because he felt that, um, the development of multisport.com was a real, uh, pioneering thing that you and rock and Paula newbie Fraser, as well as, um, John Duke put together back in the early two thousands, I guess, uh, maybe it was the late 1990s, but it was a company that, um, had an outsized role in developing coaching and camps for Ironman back in the days when Graham Fraser was still, uh, the owner, the principal owner of the events. And so I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that and, uh, the impact that it's had going forward in developing coaching and this whole idea of camps for uh, triathlon? Yeah, I mean, so multisports.com started initially, it was called the Multisports School of Champions. And it was started by Paula Newby Fraser, um, John Duke, John Howard, um, Uber cyclist and Ironman champion, and Paul Huddle. And they started that multisports multisport school of champions. And then in the late 90s, um, we kind of combined with them and I was always just, I, I was always part of the multi-sports, but it was really rock and huddle and Paula and John Duke that were the key, key partners in multisports.com. And, and really it was, it was the pioneer company in training camps. And then really the first online coaching that ever, you know, that, that took place. And so we, we were fortunate that, you know, we, we worked and I raced and rock and, and huddle worked with Graham Fraser and we were able to, to, to be able to put the official training camps on for the events that were in the North, in North America. And so, you know, like we said at that time, there weren't very many of them. And so people really wanted to be able to train on the course and, and learn. And so, um, it was pretty amazing. I mean, it was a great run. We did it for a number of, number of years and, and over, over the period of time would bring in, you know, some other pro athletes that would come and train, you know, Jurgen Zach would come in. Jimmy Riccatello was always, always part of the team and McKeely Jones would come and, and help at the camps. And, um, it was an incredible thing. You, you met a lot of people along the way and you, and, and it felt like you made a difference. You know, you felt like in those early stages, you were able to provide people with some direction and some guidance as far as their training went. And, and I think that was sort of a, a springboard for a lot of the companies that then then followed. And and now, I mean, what a what a crazy business it is out there with the coaching. So yeah, I yeah. mean it's it's an amazing thing to look back at that and um and to think think that you know that to, to where it started. And it a, a funny thing is as we got along, as we kept going, you know, it got to the point where we were all getting older and slower. And we still had to put the camps on. So we had to keep bringing in like some fast people. At the beginning, it was like, I want the fast group. I want to go with the fast group. By the end, it was like, can I go with the slower people, please? please? (laughs) We couldn't find anybody who could keep up with the fast group anymore. (laughs) Well, I love that um, idea of, you know, this pioneering spirit for the camps because uh, I've been proselytizing about camps for years because I, I've been pretty much as long as I've been in a 
in triathlon, I've loved going to camps. I find them to be incredibly beneficial. Yeah. And this year, I'm really excited because it's, it'll be my first year actually as a coach at a camp. So I'm nice. really looking forward to that. Yeah. So I'm really excited. Yeah. It'll be Lance, myself, and uh, one of our other coaches, Juliet Hawkman, and we're going to be doing a camp at St. George in April. So I'm really excited awesome. to do that. And when I, I, you know, think back to all the camps I've been on and to think that they all have kind of their roots back with you guys in multisport.com is really, um, it's really kind of neat to, to speak to you and, and hear about how it all developed along the lines of uh, being tied to those initial Ironman events. So I really like that. Um, I want to hear a little bit about how you've now transitioned to the business side of the Ironman events, because that's how I got to meet you was at that event. So w- what is your role now with the company? So now I, I guess official title is um, director of special special services for the world championship events. So um so right now I work with the world championship team, which, which we focus on, on the Ironman world championship in Kona, um, and the 70.3 world Ironman 70.3 world championship that travels around the world. Um, and those are our main, uh, main focus. And obviously this year is a big one with, with, you know, having the two Ironman world championship events in, in a year. So I, I work on basically athlete services. Um, I oversee athlete services for our events and VIP, um, services as well as our professional athlete, um, athletes for, for these events. So, um, so it's, it's great. You know what I, it, it, that my position has evolved. And initially when I first started, I, I was really fortunate when I stopped racing, I was immediately able to jump in, um, with Graham Fraser and North America sports and kind of, slide on in as, as a pro liaison and, 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 and work on that side. And, and I think it, you know, for me, it was a way that I could still feel like I was making a difference and still be involved in the sport, but not have to train and and race at that level. And, you know, people would ask me, but don't, don't you want to still be out there? And, And I said, no, I don't. I, I, I really feel like I'm still involved. And I still feel that way today that, um, that I, that I stopped racing at the right time. And I was given that opportunity to just jump in and stay involved in the sport. And so, you know, that was in 2006, started to work a little bit and continue to race, you know, a little bit longer, but, um, again, was able to slot in. And then, um, I think about five or six years ago, um, transitioned just to working with the world championship team. Um, and just as that has grown and that events, those events have become, um, the monsters that they are, it, it really has been nice to focus on those and then still be involved with the pro athletes on that side and still feel like I'm in touch with that. And then a broader scale of look, you know, being connected with all of our athletes on the athlete services side. And then, and then back to my roots where I, I was able to, you know, to do some VIP stuff from a very early start as well. So it's, it's been a, it's been a, great ride and it's been really fun and, and I continue to enjoy it and it's challenging and, um, and COVID has created more challenges than anybody can imagine. But, um, but yeah, I feel like we're, we're coming out of that and yeah, it's been, it's been a great thing. God, I hope so. Yeah. COVID you and me both with the issues. Uh, and, um, I've talked to several other pros who who have told me that once they retire, that's it. They, they're done. Uh, triathlon was their job, and once they're finished, they just don't. They don't have any interest in racing anymore. And I gather you have not done any <laughs> races. I because I know I've seen yeah. on chat boards. I believe that Paul and Rock have raced as age groupers afterwards uh, and continue to, um, which is scary for me because I think one of them is in my age group. But. Um, uh, you never did, right? You just, that was, it. I never you did. You know what? I, I felt like I had done everything that I wanted to do in the sport and I had kind of given everything that I could give. Um, and, and there was no more that I could give. And I was to that point where, um, you know, it was a career and, and, and right or wrong, I, I just wasn't able to, to find a way to go back and do it without trying to compare to what I had done before. And right. so, yeah. um, and I don't, I, again, I don't, I didn't, I didn't ever miss it. I don't, I don't miss it. I feel like I'm still involved and I think that helps, but you know, I, I like to do other things, things that I'm really not very good at, but I enjoy. And, and just for the sake of, of staying, staying healthy and staying active. So, you know, I'll be out there and do things, but for me, it's always been a personal thing anyway. I always enjoyed the training more than I did the racing. So, um, 
so I still am able to do that. And then, and then the racing side, not, not so important for me anymore. That totally makes sense. I completely understand it. I think that uh, I I came into the sport late in my thirties. And for me, it's been kind of interesting because you know, it's, it took me probably 18 to 20 years before I actually got any good at the sport. And so I've actually been able to continue getting better into my fifties, which is not usual. Uh, but at some point I'll start to see some decline and then, you know, I'll probably be in that situation where, you know, you, it's hard to, you know, to not compare against your previous self. And obviously as a professional, once you've won Kona, it's kind of hard not to compare to that. Right. Well, yeah. Um, And I mean, you know, I, I mean, I'm so far from that now that I could, I don't even think I could finish a race, but you know what you just, again, a lot of people do do it and they do it, they enjoy it and they continue to race and, you know, and they, and they love it and they race at an age group level and, and, and they have a great time. And so it just, yeah, it's a matter of, which side of the fence you are, I guess, on that one. Yeah. Um, So I know this might be a question you can't answer totally candidly because of your role with an Ironman, but I I do want to get your thoughts on the, you know, the idea of the race transitioning in in a way. I I understand that this year um, it is an exceptional year because of COVID. So there's this, almost this trial balloon of having the world championships in St. George. Um, and then the two day race in October, uh, in Kona, uh, I should preface the question with, um, as an age grouper who has had the good fortune of racing in Kona once before, uh, I kind of have, my perspective is not going to be the same as age groupers who've never been to Kona. I'm actually going to Kona again next year, which is very exciting. Um, I also am a man. And so, uh, you know, the men have more access to Kona than do the women. Although this year with the split race, it's different, but I am curious if you feel you can answer, uh, you know, honestly, uh, and if you can't, because you work for Ironman, I get it. But, um, what are your thoughts about the race moving potentially out of Kona? So, I mean, I can speak on a personal level because, you know, that's, I can speak on a number of levels, but personally, you know, when you first hear that and, and for me, history of Ironman is, is Kona and that's what you think about it. So initially it, it's like, what do you mean? What do you mean that's happening? But I think what's happened in the world over the past 18 months or so, you know, it's just been so different and, and so many different so many things have changed and opportunities have come and gone and come and gone that I think um, it makes the most sense for this year that, that that is what happens. We can, we can, you know, have that race that and give athletes the opportunity to race for that 2021 event and, and have it somewhere that we're able to do it and that we know we're able to hold it and, and celebrate something that's different and make it really unique and make, give people an opportunity for, for something that's never happened before. Um, and then going back, you know, and then being able to go back to Kona and do something that we've never done before with the two days. Um, I think that's something special <laughs> as somebody that's, that works at an event, thinking about double, <laughs> double days in Kona yeah. is, you know, is, is challenging, but, um, I think, you know, it's just been the, the, the landscape of what we've faced over the past 18 months has just kind of dictated how things are going to happen. And I think it just provides some great opportunities for, for everyone. And, and whether that continues on or doesn't, it, it's a great, we just think about how, what's happening now. And it's a pretty incredible opportunity to be able to, to, to celebrate what happens in Kona and show, and show, a, show it in a different light. So I think it's, yeah. Yeah. I've spoken to a couple of professionals and, and, you know, it's interesting. The age groupers have this, Kona, you know, a tie, I think more than the pros do. The pros I've spoken to feel that moving the race is a good thing because it it lets athletes who might not succeed in the heat uh, do have a better chance. Uh, It also uh, appeals to athletes who maybe are better cyclists because uh, the bike course in Kona is not as challenging as it is. It will be in St. George. So I found that particularly interesting. I also have heard from a lot of my um, colleagues who are women in the sport that they love the fact that finally there's a two day event because they'll get to be featured the way they are in 70.3. And, you know, I've mentioned to a couple of people, and since I'm talking to you who actually works in Ironman, I'm going to 
put forward my idea that I've been mentioning to anybody who will listen, which is I think that they, you know, I love the 70.3 worlds, the way it rotates. I have enjoyed going to the different locations. And I think one answer to possibly deal with this idea of the affinity for Kona, but the limited peer space, as well as this idea that, you know, rotating the worlds is a fun thing because it is nice to see different uh, locations is split the race have a men's race and a women's race, but have them alternate between who's in Kona. So one year the men are in Kona, one year the women are in Kona. And when the men are in Kona, the women do the worlds at a different location somewhere around the world on a different day so that it doesn't tax you guys. It's, it could be a different day. Mm-hmm. And then the next year, the I don't remember who I said, but the women would be in Kona the next year and the men yeah. would be in a different location. Maybe it's the Lanzarote or something. But um, nice. that way Kona still gets the tie. You get to benefit the, the women get to benefit because they get more slots yeah. and um, everybody I think would be happy. And that. anyways, that's my pet. So you can, that's you can awesome. mention that to Andrew and you okay. can take credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Okay. <laughs> I have one last question for you. Sure. And that is uh, looking at what goes on now today in the women's pro fields uh, and seeing finally, I think we're seeing more and more equity, uh, but still, you know, there's still a way, you know, I think there's still some things that could be improved. What would you like to see change to bring even more equity to, you know, women's pro racing uh, in the professional ranks today? Like you said, I think, I think there's a a lot of strides have been made. And I think thanks to, thanks to the girls that are out there racing now and just pushing those limits. I mean, I think that in itself is, is it's just so much more exciting and it's, it's so exciting that people want to watch it and, and, and that gets promoted that much more. Um, and I think that can only help if it's exciting for people to watch and it's promoted, uh, then it's promoted more. Um, I think, you know, I, I just, I think we're going in that direction where, yeah, the women are getting their, their time in the spotlight. And I think we do have to continue to do that and, and show that, let them have their race and let them be in the, in the spotlight and continue to bring more women into the sport and just make it more accessible for all women. But um, I really do see that there's been a lot of great strides. And again, thank you to those women that are out there racing now and pushing, pushing the envelope and just making it so incredibly exciting to watch. You know, I think that that really is, is helping in itself. Well, I think that's a great way to finish. Uh, Heather, I, I can't thank you again enough for uh, joining me today. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, as I said, uh, it's not an exaggeration to say I've looked up to you since uh, I got into the sport some 20 years ago, and it's a real thrill to be able to speak to you at long last. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I, uh, I look forward to seeing you at Worlds next year, and uh, I'll be sure to say hi and uh, restrain myself from going completely fanboy uh, next time. Sounds great. Please do say hi and and all the best in your training. And thank you so much. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesh. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at TriDocPodcast.com. If you have questions or comments about any of the issues discussed on the episode today, or if you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services or in the St. George camp that's coming up in just a couple of short weeks, please visit tri.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me, the camp, and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast and gaining access to all the bonus content available at patreon.com forward slash TriDoc Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121, train hard, train healthy.